Romans chapter 11, uh, we are in the last four verses of this chapter, finally stepping out of one of the most complex and challenging sections of not just Romans, but all of the scriptures, as he tried to help us navigate the, the eternal purposes of God and his calling in relationship to the Jews and Israel, as well as now the Gentiles are being grafted into the root system of Abraham's faith and the founding fathers and the covenant relationship that God had with the Jews. And as Paul finishes this up, he comes to this uh, moment where after taking us and exploring all the complexities of, of God's purpose and plan, regardless if we catch all of it, Paul seems to just sort of hit the brakes at the end for a moment, and he sort of breaks out in this glorious recognition of the magnitude and the awesomeness of who God is. And I believe it's, it's of great value for us to do this. Let me, I know I've told some of you this story, I don't ever expect anyone to remember these, but when I was in college, um, I loved playing sports and I played on the varsity hockey team and those kind of things. And uh, there was a time I was injured and standing on the sidelines. And there's, if you love playing sports, there's nothing that's more energizing or encouraging to hear fans cheering and cheering wildly because it just, it just kind of gets you all revved up. You get into the game. You put all your whole effort into it. You get to that 110% kind of language in terms of giving your whole effort. But what I discovered is that I'm a terrible fan. Uh, when I went to watch it, and it was kind of a weird experience for me as we were cheering, this game was going on and we scored a goal and everyone's jumping up and down and cheering, and I started doing that and all of a sudden I felt this deep conviction on my heart. And the conviction was that we're all getting so excited about scoring a goal in a hockey game, we get so excited about a sports event, why can't I get this excited about the gospel of Jesus? Why can't I show this kind of enthusiasm, this kind of excitement, this kind of energy behind the reality of the gospel? And so it bothered me so much that I kind of went into a tailspin, at least in terms of uh, how do I manage this? Because I thought it was almost, I convinced myself it was wrong to be this excited about a temporal sporting event or anything else and be so passive when it came to the gospel. You can get married when you have a child, people are just exuberant to tell people. When they get engaged, they're excited about telling people what's happening in their life. When we get an award or get promoted, we tend to be excited to tell our families and what's going on. But there's something about the spiritual battle of the gospel and the world that we live in that almost makes us struggle with the idea of being ashamed because the enthusiasm that we have for the temporary things of life aren't matched by our enthusiasm for the eternal. I've even seen it with uh, grandparents. You know, we, we have these discussions about worship and all these kinds of things, and it always amazes me that we get into these discussions where, well, you know, the joy's on the inside, not the outside. And I said, well, praise the Lord for that, because your joy on the outside's killing me. Um, but, but you even see gra grandparents with their grandkids, and their whole disposition changes. They light up, they get grinned, they start talking really stupid things like babbling to their grandkids if they're really young. And you see even older individuals do very strange things when they get around their grandkids. Why? Because there's something energizing about those lives. There's something exciting that catches our heart. 
And what Paul does, if nothing else, is he comes to us in this, this final little uh, sort of finishing work that he does in Romans chapter 11, and he just can't stand it anymore. He just bursts out in this sense of enthusiasm for God because of the staggering realities of all that he's been teaching the Romans. He just seems to have put the brakes on. He says, I can't deal with it any longer. God is awesome. God is amazing. God is absolutely unparalleled. And, so, and we get a chance to step into his enthusiasm. And if there's anything that I want to try to help you catch a little bit, is this question, is our enthusiasm for God unmatched by everything else? Does it trump the temporal celebrations of this life? Is God so exciting to us in this sense of relationship that people know this is something we value? Or do they have to do an archeological dig to find out whether it's important to us at all? And, and so I want you to wander through the scriptures here, Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 33. He says this, all the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to, uh, to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It is a profound statement. In fact, there's a, the phrase in there that I really was challenged by was really right at the front end. Uh, it's, there's a grammatical element here that could word it a couple of ways. We read it in our scriptures as, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But it could also be read, oh, the depth of the riches of God, both his wisdom and his knowledge. And then he unpacks it as being his, his uh, wisdom is related to the unsearchable judgments that he executes upon on the earth and this sense of his knowledge is unfathomable it is his ways that he conducts himself that he carries out and multitasks all the elements especially of redemption it is a powerful text it'd be a great text I'd encourage you to memorize and and reflect that in a prayer life and honoring the Lord and whatever you're doing but what I want to do is, is I want to take some time to look at the enthusiasm. I, uh, I ran across an illustration. I know I've used it like eight years ago, but I know you won't remember it. Um, it was about the uh, annual turtle races up in Nisswa, Minnesota. They actually hold these things in August for about two or three weeks. And when I first read it, I had to go to Google to find out if this was real, because I'm not from here, and I, couldn't, I didn't actually know whether someone was just making this up. But apparently up in Nisswa, they have these turtle races, and uh, they run them through August. And uh, the registrations, as you can see, is like a buck. The last year was their 59th annual running of the turtle races. And they get all these people lined up with turtles, and you can rent turtles, and you can sell turtles, and you can buy them, you can do whatever you can to get into these turtle races. And as the description goes, it was kind of interesting, they get these turtles all lined up. I think last year they had over 400 turtles, and so they had to run heats with the turtles. So they'd run heats, and the winners of the heats get to run against other turtles in heats until they get to the championship race, and then they run these races. It's about a six-foot run or whatever turtles do um, to, to win the race or the heat. And what was astounding is this person uh, was describing this was interesting. The, they say the announcer calls the turtle holders to the mark, and he yells, go. 
And the crowd goes wild as the handlers release turtles and scream at them and they jump up and down and throw water at the turtles trying to motivate them to get to go to the finish line. And uh, he says it's, what's really astounding about it is all these sort of nice, calm, you know, uh, Minnesotans just go nuts when it comes to turtle races. And I, I was challenged by that because it comes back to the same reality that it's amazing what we can get excited about in life because it's fun, and I'm not trying to suggest at all that it's wrong. But when we have this sense of relationship with the God of the universe, it's like, why should we, that should be the defining mark of the way we live life. And yet most of us are known because we're athletes, or we've got a hobby, or we, we're known for our enthusiasm and our commitment and our commitment to, to lots of different things. But the question is, do people see that kind of natural enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus and the gospel of Jesus? That becomes kind of the challenge that I want you to at least sort of touch on in your lives as we tip our, uh, dip our toe into these scriptures. I just want you to sort of bathe in the reality of Paul's enthusiasm and say, listen, does, is this what touches my life? Is this the values that really drive the way I live? And, and he, it's really a profound challenge. And so as he works through this, he begins by talking about this very easy statement, um, all the depth of the riches of God, both the wisdom and his knowledge. The riches of God, I, we were reminded of that back in Romans chapter two. He made a statement, and it's in the context of people who judge other people, but yet they commit the same kind of error that they're judging others for. And so there's this habit or behavior that moralists or believers were getting into where they thought they could pass judgment on others. And in verse four he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? And, and so there's, a, there's a, a description that Paul says in God's grace and his generosity and his mercy towards sinful humanity is, over, is staggering to him. That God would even bother, rather than inflicting his wrath upon human beings who do, deserve his wrath, he is, he is challenging these people who are passing judgment on others to say, listen, have you forgotten already the incredible kindness of God, the riches of his patience and his kindness toward you to save you when you didn't deserve it? I mean, it's one of the great struggles that we have in life. We, we want to have a moral compass. We want to live pure and holy lives. And we know that the, the, the real danger for us is that when we fail, we see it as circumstantial. Well, you don't understand my circumstances. When other people fail, there's always a tendency to see it as a character issue. And we end up questioning their spirituality. Because, well, with them, they say they're a Christian. How could they do this? If we did the same thing, we go, well, you don't understand my circumstances. And I really didn't have much choice. But in, in, and often it's because our perspective of God begins to shrink and we begin to, to basically put him on a shelf and he becomes very small in relationship to the way life is lived. That we start becoming the center of life. The, I mean, the only reason we end up criticizing and passing judgment on others is that we sort of become Lord and master of our life and we start taking a role that only God should have. So as we begin to work through this, I, I want to remind you that when he talks about the riches of God, he's not 
just talking about material things. That's got nothing to do with it. It's talking about his generosity and his mercy and his grace and his kindness towards people who don't deserve it. But then he goes on immediately and he mentions this whole idea of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, I just want to remind you that wisdom, there's a great theological term, omnisapiens, that really talks about wisdom. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just a person who, in their mind, can look ahead and anticipate things and it's all on, 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 uh, on paper, so to speak. But God's knowledge is of us, primarily. I mean, he's got knowledge about all, everything in the universe, But one of the ways that we need to think about is that God's knowledge of us, and he absolutely knows you better than you know yourself. He knows all the dark secrets of your life, he knows all the crevices, he knows uh, the things that you do well, he knows the things that nobody else knows, even people in your family. He he knows all the struggles you have and the emotional turmoil, and one of the things about God's wisdom is that he always sees things in proper perspective. It never gets distorted. The problem is, when we look at one another, we get it distorted. I remember after uh, Barb and I got married, we were away from my mom for long periods of times, and we would visit. But then I came back and had a discussion. It had to do with finances or something. And I said something like, well, Dad never really took a lot of time to help us understand finances or investing or anything like that. And I said, well, but I've been doing my own study. And my mom goes, oh, man. I am so glad to hear that because I just, and this is several years after I left home. All she remembers is where I was when I left home, when I was 19. And so her her perspective was distorted like, wow, I didn't know if you'd ever get that figured out. And I'm going like, really? That's like, that was five, six years ago. And, And that's what happens to us, is that we see people and we'll see them through a certain lens or an experience, and then we often tend to label them as, as being sort of that problem or that struggle or whatever it happens to be, and we we've rarely leave room for people to change. And, and so in all of our finiteness, we struggle not only with how we tend to stereotype one another and how we sort of categorize one another, but we often don't leave room for people to grow and change. Once, you know, and some people are better than others. You offend them, they're going to hold a grudge for the rest of their life. That's going to be the defining point of your relationship, and that's the way it's going to be. So it's, it's, it's a struggle. But as he comes here, God will always, in his wisdom, have the absolute, proper, clearest perspective of the reality of your life and my life without even the distortions of our own opinions about it. He sees us the way we are. He sees all the the goodness that his grace has forged in us. He sees all the ugliness of our own sinful behaviors. And God doesn't give anything a higher or lower value than what it actually has. I mean, you and I know we can demean and judge and criticize one another. We can compete with one another. We can categorize people all day long based on what their behaviors are. But God has this perfect sense of clarity in his wisdom to know exactly the reality of everything. And what is comforting is that God isn't going to be demeaning. He's not going to use that information inappropriately. And especially in God's redemptive plan, when he's talked about it with Israel and and, uh, the Gentiles, that God is wise in how he treats both. He does it with perfect wisdom and clarity in dealing with the reality of their lives. But the other things he talks about is knowledge. It's his omniscience. 
And that is that God knows everything and everyone actual and possible. There's no variable, there's no contingency plan that God doesn't already know about in terms of not only how we live, but what's happening. God knows us so well that he knows every possible choice that we will make and every possible choice you could make and he understands exactly what direction you're going. Now that might seem unfair, but after all, he's God. He's got a bit of an advantage on us. We are finite, limited creatures and half the time we have no idea where we're going. And so at the heart of this, it ought to bring a great sense of comfort, not intimidation, that the God that I am surrendering my life to knows me better than I know myself. He knows the journey and every conceivable possible choice that I could make, whether it's good or bad, and he's still in the journey with us. He's still present with us, and he loves us deeply because he sacrificed his son for us. And so he knows all the free acts that we can choose, and that's the genius of God. That's the the brilliance and the intelligence of God that we haven't even begun to understand ourselves. I'm I'm waiting for the day. We uh, had a a service here for Marty Gorse yesterday. And every time we have a funeral service or a memorial service, I'm always envious of the person who's passed away as much as I will miss him, that he gets to stand face to face with the Savior and he gets to see things and understand things that we haven't even begun to touch on. I believe that when we get into the presence of God and even though we're gonna spend eternity there, God is so vast and so deep in terms of his own personality and who he is that we'll spend eternity learning new things and learning about our relationship with him. The second thing he talks about is the greatness of God. He makes this statement, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable is Uh, his ways. The word's actually the same word. It's translated differently in English, just so it doesn't sound redundant. But the idea here is that it's pertaining to be something being impossible to understand on the basis of careful examination and investigation. So it doesn't matter. The idea here is you can study it and study it and you can look at every kind of nuance and every crevice and every different angle you can possibly look at it. And God's ways are so complex and so eternal and so divinely driven that you can spend forever there and you will not figure out all the details, how he multitasks everything, how he works out his plan of redemption with perfect love and righteousness and holiness. I mean, all that plays into how he operates. And it's so beyond our capacity to comprehend that we ought to just rest in the satisfaction that God is not exhaustible. We will never be able to put God in a box and go, all right, I've got you completely figured out. I know exactly what you're going to do. That, I don't know about you, but for me, that brings a sense of comfort. There are so many things that we need to look at in terms of this, but God's, God's judgments are just, and they're righteous, and they're loving. The word judgment is often used in terms of justice. When he delivered uh, Israel out of Egypt, he said his righteous judgments are what delivered them. So all the, the miracles and the signs and the judgments weren't just punishment. They weren't just uh, God taking it out on the Egyptians. They were done in perfect love and mercy and grace. He gave Pharaoh ample time to respond and to repent, and he did it several times. But God navigated all that in perfect wisdom and knowledge. It says his words, his ways are inscrutable. 
Uh, it literally means to search something out. It has about the idea of tracking an animal. It's one of the contexts that it's used. And so unless you're a, a, a trained uh, hunter in some respects, sometimes it's very difficult to track an animal if, you're, if you uh, shoot it or whatever. My son likes to hunt and he's talked to me a lot of times about what it means to shoot at an animal, not know whether you hit it or not, and then try to track the thing to see whether it's been injured or whether you, you just got away. But the, the point here is that God is so great, God is so complex, and he's so much above everything that he's created that you could spend every single day of your life scrutinizing every nuance of the scriptures and, his, and who he is, and you will never figure him all out. And that's really why he talks about the grandeur of God. He'll, he actually quotes, in verse 34 and 35, two Old Testament passages. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Uh, it really is talking about the immensity of God, because he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, it's, it's a magnificent passage of scripture. Let me just walk you through some of the, passage, the verses. And I just want you to just allow the Spirit of God to help you impress this on your heart in terms of the immensity, the enormity of who God is. He begins in Isaiah 40, 12. This isn't the verse he's quoting. It's the one before him. And it says, Who has measured the waters, the oceans, in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens by the span. The span was basically from little finger to thumb. That was a span of measurement in, uh, in the Old Testament. And so he's basically saying all of the heavens, God can hold up his hand and he can measure the vast reaches of the universe. Uh, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales. Verse 13 is the verse he quotes from Romans. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? So the idea is, where did God ever need to learn? You know, you and I, we make mistakes, so we have people speaking into our life and giving us a fresh perspective and helping us fix the times that we've made bad choices. There isn't anyone in the known or unknown universe that ever has had to counsel God. He has this perfect knowledge of everything with perfect clarity, and God never makes any mistakes. And so at the heart of this, this is kind of the question that he brings up in Romans, that if you want to understand the enormity, the greatness of God, how awesome he really is, he takes us back to this text, and he says, let me remind you of how enormous God is and how unlimited he is. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he, God, lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They re are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, he's not saying our lives are worthless before God. The point is, God is so great, God is so awesome that compared to him, all the nations in the, in the whole world are simply like a drop of water off the side of a bucket. I mean, that's, that's what Paul wants us to say. In all of his redemptive plan, we've got to remember that we serve an enormous God who is greater than all that we face on this earth. He is staggeringly awesome. 
he goes on and he talks a little bit about this idea of his grandeur. Not talks only about his, his immensity and how great and big God is, so to speak, but he also talks about his perfections. He quotes Job, Job 35, 7 and 41, 11. And this is where Job is having his discussion with his three buddies who are trying to fix him. And uh, one of them makes some statements that are pretty profound in Job. He really talks about that God is so perfect and complete, he doesn't need to grow. That's where this, this idea comes in is like, have you ever given a gift to God that he's obligated to you now? He's really saying, do you think you really could affect God in any particular way and manipulate him to do anything according to what you want? By the way, that may sound ridiculous, but we live in a culture, in a world, where Christians treat God like a concierge, like he's there to do our bidding, to serve up what we want and snap our fingers, and he's out there to simply curate tickets or parking spots or whatever. And we have to be careful that even though this sounds ridiculous, it is uh, really something that we could violate even in our own way that we treat God. God is self-existent in his perfection. That means he is the source of his own existence and life is, is sustained wholly by himself. The sun is a magnificent powerhouse of seemingly eternal energy as far as our human perspective is. But God created that. We have scientists talking all the time about suns that burn themselves out, that they're not eternal, that they do have limitations. But God in and of himself is self-sustaining. He energizes his own existence and he has existed from eternity past. So it doesn't matter how far you go in your thinking about trying to figure out where God began, no matter how far you go, he was already there. And so God has this sense of immensity and he's perfect. He's immutable, God does not change. He is infinite and perfect, that God is complete, he is finished, in him there's nothing lacking, there is no defect or dysfunction. James says there's no variation in God at all. He is perfectly consistent with his own nature. But sometimes we'll look at the Old Testament and we go, that God seems really different than the God that I think I'm worshiping in the New Testament. If, if God was really true to these things, why am I going through the circumstances that I'm going through? I mean, where's God? Why doesn't he fix things? Why doesn't he, like, help and it's so easy in the ebb and flow of our lives to start passing judgment on God, and yet he's the one with perfect wisdom and clarity. He knows the journey we're in. He knows the choices we make. He knows the stubbornness of our heart and the selfishness that we often exercise our own life. And even in our greatest moments of humility and selflessness, God understands the journey that we're on. Job 35 makes this statement. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him or what does he receive from your hand? The basic idea, and there's a thing that we call the impassibility of God. It basically says, it used to, there's an old picture that people used to say, well, God has no feelings, no emotions. He doesn't care about anything. He's just kind of like this mechanical robot or computer that just kicks out the program and he just runs it. Doesn't matter what the collateral damage is. He doesn't really feel anything, doesn't care about anything. 
But the idea of God's impassibility is not, is that humans cannot make God suffer unless he chooses to suffer with them. God is never the victim of human beings. God may choose to suffer and feel the pain of our process, but we're never in a position where we can control and manipulate God like we can manipulate one another. I had a sales guy show up at my door yesterday. Uh, He was a pest control person. So he started in right with his spiel, and uh, it got more annoying as it went. Uh, you know how it goes, it's like, well, who do you have? Well, I use this company and they do things. Well, I can tell that they don't do this because you have this here and these things and I'll do a much better job right out to the road and all these kind of things and my price is gonna be clearly better than theirs even though I didn't tell them what they paid. Um, and then he said, and then it gets around to these like, you know, you know, I've done probably about 40 customers in your area like they all say and then it ends up being, and I have some openings on Monday afternoon or Monday morning, which one would work best for you? And I said, neither. I said, thanks for your time, appreciate it. Uh, I've already got it looked after. He says, oh, well, what's the main reason you don't want to switch companies and go with me? (laughs) And that's where I was really tempted to say something I probably shouldn't. But I said, well, I already have a company and I'm quite happy with what they're doing. Thanks for your time, have a good day, and off he took off. But it's really easy to get into a mode where we try to manipulate people to do what we want them to do rather than necessarily listening to God. And it becomes one of these problems that we can manipulate and we can maneuver people because we're great salespeople. But that's not, the pro- that's not what we can do with God. We can't barter with him. We can't, uh, we can't bribe him. We, c- we can't really affect him. And that's the point Paul's saying is when he comes down here, he's saying, look it, I want you to get a glimpse of the awesomeness of who God is. And if this is tough to think through all these nuances that he's talked about in terms of the Jews and the Gentiles, it's kind of like, well, I'm glad someone knows what's going on because not all the stuff I get. I mean, even Peter said it. There's some things that Paul writes about that are just like, man, they're hard to understand. And at the heart of this, It's great that when we live in a world where we don't have it all figured out, that there's a God who's in the journey, that as we surrender to him and put faith in Christ and learn to walk in the spirit and obey his word, that this is the the, the one objective reality that we can rely on for life. Because we got a lot of different voices telling us what to do. We got a lot of people telling us this is how we're supposed to live. And ultimately, the voice that we need to hear is the voice of God and living according to his truth. And so Paul says, as he finishes this up, he says, all things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. It's literally a mirror image of Colossians chapter one. Let me just read it for you. And he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, what an astounding statement. That every, there is no random molecule in the entire universe that God sustains and energizes and holds all of it together, whether we're talking about gravity or sustaining our existence as human beings. 
that there is one source and God is the architect of all life. Because it's through him, he's the creator and the designer and the engineer of all life. And if he can create it, then he's the best one to lay out a plan for how we ought to live it. And yet, you and I both know the greatest struggle we can face is, I want to be the captain of my own destiny. I want to leave my own legacy in life. I want to take control of my own life and live it, rather than simply surrendering to the lordship of Christ, submit to God, to walk by the Spirit of God, to learn his word, and make choices based on this truth, not the inclinations of my own heart. And so the question I want to ask you is this. Do you allow the Spirit of God to cultivate in your heart the value of eternal things more than the temporal? Do you get as excited about the gospel of Jesus and Christ and eternal things as much as you get excited about a new child in your family or about temporary victories, a new job? Which, which one trumps the other? Are you more excited for God's redemptive work in you and others than the temporary things of this life? <laughs> this week was, um, I jokingly told somebody, I said, well, this is a tough week because my wife and I were supposed to be in Mexico for the next three weeks. And I went up in smoke. But you know, God has a plan. I'm gonna get a chance to go and see my son who I, if I have my calculations right, I don't think I've seen him for two years. God has his ways. And if we get too set on our stuff and my plan and what I'm going to do in life, you can have a really miserable life and not learn how to walk and trust him. What do the things you truly get what are the uh, what do the things you truly get excited about right now say about what you truly value? I read a story this week about an individual who uh, wanted to publish a book, but it's very difficult to publish a book. And so a gentleman, a freelance writer by the name of Chuck Ross, uh, decided to test the system. So he went and took a published award-winning book and he wrote the first 20 pages, sent it into publishers, and that book was probably six, seven years old, so it's easy to forget these things. And he got it rejected by every publisher that he sent it to. So he basically plagiarized it, but he was trying to just test the system to see whether anybody would recognize it. Uh, two years later, he retyped the entire novel from a particular author and submitted it under a different name. And uh, the same kind of things. The very publishing house that actually, he, that published that book that he sent actually rejected it in a form letter. And uh, nobody recognized that the book had already been published and who had published it. They become so caught up in the pace of life and the next project that they didn't even recognize their own work. And I, and I want to challenge us this morning that sometimes that can be our approach to God. That can be our approach to God's word. I already know it. I already know everything I need to do. I'm doing just what God wants me to do. And we've shrunk God down to simply being a, a maintenance man in my life to keep everything going this week so that we don't face too many tragedies or too many difficulties. Listen, let Paul's enthusiasm break into your heart and soul and affect you in a way that says, listen, maybe I need to bow the knee before the throne of grace and confess that I've treated God like a glib afterthought rather than the Lord of my life. That my enthusiasm for the eternal ought to trump any other thing that I get excited about in life. And yet the reality is, is God, I've sort of become indifferent. You know, it's a fact, but 
just not feeling it. And so the question is, what's changed? Has God changed or has something changed for me? Is there something that's robbing you of the joy and the enthusiasm of knowing Jesus? It can happen. It happens to all of us. But maybe today as we step closer to the middle of the summer, might be a good day to just sort of reevaluate. Lord, am I valuing you for the great and awesome God that you are? Especially in relationship to his redemptive plan that he would actually have mercy and grace and kindness to save people who deserve nothing but his wrath. Let's pray together. Father, you know, life can suck all the joy out of our life. We can become so overwhelmed and burdened with the things that we have to do and the responsibilities that we have and the issues that are going wrong and the relationships that we don't like that we literally can put you on the side and we can just basically dismiss you, that you're not being as helpful as we think and so we just start ignoring you. But Father, there's a time like we see in Paul's life that he is so enthusiastic, so enamored by the, by the person of Christ and the work that you are doing that in spe- even in spite of the great agony of his own heart about those Jews who needed to be saved, he bursts forth with this sort of enraptured reality of his own heart and mind of the glory of an awesome God who deserves glory, who we need to give glory to and live our life for the glory of our God. Father, help us to do that. Help us to realign our lives so that you are glorified. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.